Hey, Politics in Question listeners. I'm Emily Corsetti from The Purple Principle. How did our country get so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How do we get less partisan? People have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. And can independent-minded Americans bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Take a 360-degree tour of partisanship with The Purple Principle, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast where we discuss our political institutions, how they're failing, and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. Oh boy. Do our institutions feel like they are uh, failing us these days? We are recording on uh, May 21st after the Republican Party in Congress has decided that we don't need a commission to investigate what happened on January 6th because apparently that will hurt them in the midterm elections. We are in this period of, of intense hyperpartisan nastiness uh, and uh, I think a, a lot of folks are, are wondering what the what future exists for, for American democracy. Uh, but I think one of the challenges that a lot of folks have in understanding the situation in American democracy is that you know, we, we don't have broad enough context other than, than our own history. Uh, so you know, is our politics really on the verge of democratic collapse or you know, is this just, you know, typical partisan conflict? So obviously a, a big fan of looking beyond our borders. So I'm really delighted to in, invite Noam Gidron, who is a professor at the Hebrew University of uh, Jerusalem and the co-author of, of a, a wonderful short new book, American Effective Polarization in Comparative Perspective. So welcome, Noam. It's, it's really great to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Lee and Julia. It's definitely my pleasure. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So let's start this conversation by trying to get some basic concepts in place. So political scientists talk about affective polarization, which I've always found to be a somewhat confusing term. And frankly, I think we, we need something more, uh, something catchier and more intuitive to describe this uh, phenomenon. But uh, can you just start off by talking us through what we mean when we talk about affective polarization, how we measure it, um, and, and why it's become such a hot topic in the study of American politics and increasingly comparative politics? Yes. Yeah, so I think that polarization, like most interesting concepts in the social sciences, is a multidimensional concept. There are different dimensions of political polarization. And just until a few years ago, I'd say that most discussions about political polarization focused on ideological polarization. That is disagreements on specific policy issues, policy dimensions. But as you noted more recently, following important work by scholars of American politics, I think the attention has shifted to affective polarization, which is most commonly understood as dislike, hostility, and resentment across party lines. 
So in the US, it's pretty intuitive. We are talking about negative emotions between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, of course, it becomes much more complicated once we shift to countries with many parties, um, like my country, Israel, where you may dislike some parties, but also like other parties. So maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. In terms of how we measure affective polarization, of course, there are several, several ways uh, of doing so, usually through surveys. And the most common way to measure affective polarization is to look at the difference between how much people like their own party and how much they dislike opposing parties. But there are also other ways to examine affective polarization, for instance, by questions that ask whether you'd be willing to accept someone from another party as a family relative, co-worker, a neighbor, etc. These questions are usually called the social distance questions. And there are also questions that ask about stereotypes associated with different parties and partisans. And so there are multiple ways in which we can try and capture this underlying concept of affective polarization or partisan resentment. And then about why we should care about it and why people are concerned about affective polarization. Well, we have evidence that affective polarization is correlated with a bunch of negative outcomes, um, lower trust in poli political institutions and governments, lower satisfaction with democracy, higher perceptions of ideological polarization, lower trust in general, and some would say more broadly also the erosion of democratic norms and institutions. Now, of course, there are still debates about whether these are just correlation or also causal relationships, but I think these correlations suggest that we should take this concept seriously. Maybe I should also note that, of course, uh, I didn't come up with this concept of affective polarization, which is used extensively by scholars of American politics, as you mentioned, Lee. Our main contribution in this work is mostly to examine this concept and to study affective polarization from a comparative perspective. Yeah, that's... That's really interesting. And I think I want to see if we can return to this idea of what would be different, I guess, what are the stakes between these different types of polarization? I mean, I think this is a really interesting debate about whether polarization is in the US is primarily affective and emotional, as you said, or whether it is um, linked to issue differences. And I do see this sort of balance of scholarly opinion seems to be shifting toward toward affective. And it's interesting, you note that affective polarization is associated with all of these negative outcomes. And I'm I'm interested about I'm interested about whether that, you know, would be different. We might have different outcomes if polarization was really linked to to issue differences. If if you'll entertain me on a, a follow-up on that. Well, I think one of the most highly debated issues now is how these different dimensions of polarization relate to one another, right? Because we have this uh, concept of ideological polarization and affective polarization, and the question of whether or not they are associated with one another and whether one is driving the other is something that is heatedly debated, I think, both theoretically and empirically. I do think that maybe following up on what you suggested, we should also distinguish between different dimensions of ideological polarization and think about the specific topics on which people disagree in terms of their policy stances. And that would probably give us some leverage to think about the relationship between ideological and affective polarization. Right, that makes sense. So I want to um, I, I actually ask a little bit about the comparative perspective. I think a lot about this question of how we should put the U.S. in comparative perspective, because obviously we should, but at the same time, it's a really unique and distinct case. 
So your book is it's obviously dedicated to that cause, American Affective Polarization and Comparative Perspective. What stands out about the U.S.? What is, what, what is unique versus what might just be sort of dislike across opposing parties is just the normal stuff of politics that we see in other parts of the world? Yeah, I definitely take your point that the U.S. is unique in many ways. But, you know, I, I live in Israel and here in Israel, people think, oh, Israel is so unique in so many ways. We cannot compare it to any other case. So maybe we have this tendency to think that the cases we know best are especially unique in some ways. But more specifically, to answer your questions about what stands out when we look at the U.S. from a comparative perspective, perhaps what really stands out is that the U.S. doesn't stand out at all when we compare American levels of affective polarization to what we find in other countries. So we talk a lot about how affectively polarized the U.S. is. But I'm a comparativist in training, and my immediate response is affectively polarized compared to which countries, compared to other cases. And what we find when comparing the U.S. to other Western polities is that American politics is actually not an outlier when we look at overall levels of affective polarization. Now, let me just know that this is not to say that I don't think we should be worried about polarization in the U.S. or about this rise of partisan resentment in American politics. But it does suggest that if we are concerned about what's going on in the US, we should probably be concerned also about what's going on in other countries where effective polarization is actually much, much higher, for instance, in countries in Southern Europe. So I think we can only gain this understanding of where the US is located compared to other countries when we adopt a comparative perspective. And it helps shed light both in the American case, but also about other cases. Now, that being said, when we look at changes over time, not overall levels, we do find that affective polarization increased in the US more sharply than in most other cases. So the change over time is more worrying, more pronounced in the U.S. than in most other countries. But still, it's really hard to argue that the U.S. stands out as an especially intense case of affective polarization, at least compared to the Western politics that we are studying. We haven't looked at countries outside of the Western world, so I can't speak to that issue. But among advanced democracies, the U.S. is actually not that unique. So... Let's dig into to this point a little more, because you know, by uh, comparing a bunch of Western polities, uh, you, you get an important variation on a bunch of factors or, you know, different political institutions, different party systems, different levels of federalism, different media environments, different levels of, of economic inequality, different economies, different racial and, and cultural histories, a, a bunch of things that could account for uh, both uh, variation across countries and, and perhaps changes over time, uh, as well as, the, you know, the, there's two component pieces of the affective polarization measure in party uh, feeling and, and out party feeling. So uh, this, you know, feels, feels like a, a, a jumble of factors here. How do you make sense of all these, uh, you know, competing factors and, and measurements? And what's the, the kind of big story that emerges when we look at 
correlations and perhaps even even causes across all these Western polities that you've looked at? Yeah, so I think you outlined very nicely why it's really hard to do comparative work on this topic and on other topics. That being said, I, I think we can gain quite a lot of insights. First, actually, by just looking at the descriptive results, right? Just by learning how much the US is effectively polarized, actually also ideologically polarized compared to other cases. Now, it's indeed the case that these 20 Western polities on which we are looking differ from one another on multiple dimensions. Based on theoretical literature in both American politics and comparative politics, we decided to focus on three largely structural factors. The type of ideological disagreements that organize the party system, economic conditions, and electoral rules. Of course, that doesn't mean that other factors, like the one you mentioned, for instance, the media environment, don't matter. It's just that we decided to focus on these three main factors of ideological disagreements, economic conditions, and electoral rules. So that's one part of my answer. So we can examine differences across countries, but we can also examine variations within countries over time. And here we can leverage the fact that we are analyzing data collected over more than 25 years. So we can examine how, for instance, changes in economic conditions or how changes in certain types of ideological disagreements help explain differences in affective polarization within the same country, holding several other factors constant. So can you say more about, about what you find after uh, doing all that uh, hard statistical analysis? Sure. So in terms of looking at ideological disagreements, we looked at two specific dimensions separately, the economic dimension of who gets what, and the more cultural dimension of who we are, issues that relate to identity politics, national identity, and multiculturalism. And here what we found is that affective polarization is more strongly linked with elite disagreements on cultural issues of issues of who we are than on the maybe more traditional economic issues. And we can talk about this uh, later on why we think this is the case. In terms of economic conditions, we find that affective polarization tends to be higher in countries that are more unequal in terms of the distribution of income. Um, although here we are looking at correlations between 20 cases, so there's not too much we can say about this relationship. When looking at unemployment, we find that it's also closely associated with affective polarization also within countries over time. When unemployment increases, affective polarization also tends to increase. And then lastly, we also look at electoral institutions, electoral rules. And here we find that in line with some of the foundational work in comparative institutionalism, proportional representation is strongly associated with more positive feelings toward political opponents and lower levels of affective polarization. So we have these three factors that I think we can mostly examine how they relate to affective polarization by adopting this broader comparative view. When we just focus on the US, for instance, we can't really examine how affective polarization relates to something like electoral institutions, which usually don't change that quickly, if at all, within countries. So this is why we think we need to adopt this broader perspective to examine uh, this issue of affective polarization. 
So I want to follow up a bit um, and get you to expand a little bit on the challenges of, of race and ethnic, multi-ethnic democracy and how it relates to to affective polarization and to the relationship between citizens and their political leaders. So in your book, you all write, affective polarization changes in mass publics are related to elite level conflicts on cultural issues. In analyzing affective polarization trends within countries over time, we find that as, as party elites become more polarized over cultural issues, immigration, race, and national identity, affective polarization tends to intensify. These analyses hold economic conditions and electoral institutions constant. And you know that this is especially pronounced um, in the United States. And also that this is that economic issues don't work the same way. And you don't really see the same kind of relationship between party leaders' economic polarization and then a, a resulting shift in affective polarization among their their citizens in the in the electorate. So why do you think that is? Why are these issues so pronounced? And what is the what are the implications for the United States? Yeah, I think the relationship between cultural ideological disagreements and affective polarization is really interesting. And our intuition was that we need to go beyond thinking about elite ideological disagreements in terms of the overall left-right dimension um, or liberal conservative in the U.S. And think about specific issue dimensions. And here we wanted to look separately on economic issues and cultural issues uh, because of the following intuition that for most people, it may be easier to compromise on economic issues of who gets what than on cultural issues of who we are and what is our shared identity. Put differently, it may be easier for me to reach a compromise about how much taxes I pay or how much benefits I receive but it's harder to compromise on my core identity. And indeed, as I mentioned before, this is what we find, that cultural disagreements more strongly intensify affective polarization. And interestingly, in a follow-up study, we found that this is the case not only across countries, when we compare countries with higher and lower levels of cultural disagreements, but also within countries. I mean that within countries with multiple parties, people dislike more strongly parties that are further away from them on cultural issues than parties that are further away from them on economic issues. So these within country findings bolster our confidence that cultural disagreements indeed produce this angrier type of politics. And by the way, um, this notion that some issues feel angrier to people is taken from the book uh, Identity Crisis by uh, Sides, Vavrik, and Tesla. So I, I want to follow up a, a little bit more on this uh, point about political elites and, and particularly thinking about the rise and, and role of uh, Donald Trump in, in American politics. And, you know, I, I think there are competing theories. You know, one theory suggests that Donald Trump is really responsible for uh, kind of a, taking this demonization, political hatred uh, to the next level, and the way in which he has really, you know, talked about Democratic Party as the enemy, and he's really sort of aggressively attacked core groups in the Democratic coalition. 
But, you know, another uh, theory could say that he, he's planting a flag in very uh, fertile soil. And, you know, I, I think it seems like he's done what some other political leaders have done, um, uh, notably um, Orban in, in Hungary and uh, Erdogan in Turkey. And we had uh, Jennifer McCoy on last year talk about uh, some of those, those comparisons. And that was uh, an episode everyone should listen to. But, but I want to ask you this uh, in, in terms of the, the structure of the, the party system, kind of building on what you talked about before. And you know, I guess the, the question really is how much, how much is it the leaders themselves or how much is it really the interaction between the two and that it, it takes a particular uh, arrangement of a party system interacting with the electoral institutions and level of, of econ- economic hardship to enable the rise of a particular leader. And then that leader essentially becomes like the uh, you know, spark, uh, dry tinder that lights the fire. Yeah, well, to be honest, I think that you two are actually much better positioned maybe to answer this question about how Trump is unique to the American political landscape and historical evolution. But let me just note maybe the following. So we've just discussed the role of ideological polarization on on cultural issues as one main driver of affective polarization. And here we see that actually the two parties have been moving further away on cultural issues um, since before 2015. It's not a unique phenomenon. So Trump didn't create this deep cultural divide out of thin air just in order to get elected in 2016. If I remember correctly, actually elite cultural polarization in the US increased more or less steadily, gradually since the mid nineties, which is where our data begin. Uh, So that makes me cautious about attributing too much explanatory power specifically to Trump without, of course, uh, belittling his role in what we are currently witnessing in American politics and the Republican Party. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this issue. Yeah, I I, I mean, I I broadly agree with you. You know, I think, like I said, you know, I think Trump planted a flag in in very uh, friendly soil, the fact that he was able to win the primary on a campaign race, you know, largely around racial uh, resentment. And, you know, in fact, in many ways, it was really about just winning and owning the libs. And, you know, I think that really reflected the way that the the parties had oriented, you know, and, you know, also on a point that I've, I've made multiple times is that because of the two party system that a lot of the Republicans who were initially cautious about him, found that uh, they had more in common with him than they did with the Democrats. And, you know, sort of in, in this kind of us versus them mentality, the, the enemy of, of my enemy becomes my friend. And over time, that loyalty has has built and built to the point where even Republicans who a few months ago found themselves the target of, of attacks on their their livelihood and the U.S. Capitol are now saying, oh, no big deal. Yeah, we don't need to look any further. So, I mean, the transformation has truly been remarkable, but, you know, looked at from a much uh, higher altitude that that looks at the the way in which uh, party systems are are, uh, important shapers of these dynamics, it seems 
entirely predictable and inevitable. So I want to jump in here on this GOP point too, because I think this is really interesting. There are a lot of, of kind of large scale studies of, of different types and particularly of, of psychological types that are not hyper-focused on um, the asymmetry between the two parties. But then, especially in kind of larger commentary and certainly in, in institutionalist circles that look at how how Trump inhabited the presidency, which we've talked about, but also how congressional Republicans have, have behaved maybe since the um, Obama administration, although there's probably some earlier examples, we think about that and, and there's substantial asymmetry between the the two parties and you know i've made this argument but also a lot of other types of people norm ornstein and thomas mann who are really close congress watchers who made this point for over a decade now and you know friend our friend of the podcast perry bacon had a piece out this week in the washington post talking about the republican party and the sort of anti-democracy problem and you know this argument kind of suggests it's not affective polarization, it's not hyper-partisanship, it's the fact that we have one party that has kind of entered into this ethno-nationalist and anti-democratic sort of space and has moved past policy, we've talked a lot about this, into the sort of owning the libs, into winning in sort of a way that um, illustrates some of the points that that Francis Lee and Liliana Mason have made in their work about the competitive nature of American politics, and you know I just wonder how this how this compares, um, or what if what if anything your your findings can tell us about that. Do you do you see this asymmetry? Do we see this asymmetry in other? kinds of, of context with high affective polarization? Is this just a totally different phenomenon? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, maybe two thoughts come to mind. The first is maybe what you're saying indirectly is that at least in some cases, affective polarization may not be such a bad thing, right? Perhaps it's actually a sign of a healthy democracy when people very strongly dislike parties that are openly or, I don't know, maybe semi-openly authoritarian, anti-democratic, uh, ethno-nationalist, racist, uh, what have you. So yes, that actually, I think that's a compelling point. Thinking about how it compares to what we can find abroad. Well, I think this point about asymmetry speaks to uh, what we see in terms of affective evaluations of the radical right in other countries. And we actually do have some comparative work which suggests that the GOP is now closer to a European radical right party than a mainstream center-right party. And when we look at multi-party system, looking mostly at Western Europe, what we find is that radical right parties are very strongly disliked. They are strongly hated by mainstream partisans. And that even after we account for their policy positions, including on issues of national identity and immigration. So radical right parties suffer from something like an asymmetrical affective punishment. People really, really dislike them. And I think that's it's an interesting normative question, whether that's desirable, whether that's good or bad. It may be the case that we actually want mainstream partisans to recognize and punish effectively parties that stray too far from democratic norms and institutions. So, so I think that that's a good point to think about from a normative perspective. Yeah, this is really fascinating. I, I want to just follow up really 
briefly about this. I, I want to point out to put the United States in historical context that I think it, historically both parties have had substantial ethno-nationalist and racist elements. And this is something I've written about at 538, about how we've actually always had these divisive issues that just tended to divide parties internally. So, you know, I don't, I think that's important both for understanding that the Republican Party as it is today didn't come out of nowhere and for acknowledging what American history is and also for sort of putting this in this larger, this larger context where, you know, we're not, picking on Republicans exactly, but we are picking on the fact that they have really adopted this trajectory. The other thing that that I've been that I think is really fascinating, I didn't know this about that there was a specific affect of polarization in a comparative context toward these populist parties, but I that makes a lot of sense. And that's something that I'm looking forward to reading more of your your work and finding out more about. But it makes me think of this sort of brief time I spent in France. I was thinking about actually writing my dissertation about this and then I wrote it about something entirely different but um but I was interested in these sort of far-right parties and one of the things I thought was interesting was when I mentioned this to people they really they expressed a lot of dislike for these parties you know it's horrible whatever and then like in the next breath they would tell me don't go down that street that's where all the Arabs are and you know it was clear that this this sort of casual racism pervaded society just as it does here and it's very geographical and it's very linked to people's ideas of safety. But there's something about it being organized, right? There's something about it being organized and articulated in a civic context. And I, I find it interesting that that kind of dissonance perhaps is there. And I think that I think you're right. I think it's probably normatively good to have that reaction. And I think actually building on some stuff I've seen Liliana Mason talking about, it is actually some of the polarization we see in U.S. society is a sort of real response to and then effort to assert a multi-ethnic democracy and we actually have a multi-ethnic political majority in this country now which is um which is actually quite i think quite an accomplishment so i I guess yeah this is one way of thinking about how the news isn't all bad although it feels it feels pretty bad that is the end of my ramble about my travels to france thank you all for indulging me yeah, you should have a podcast about ideas for dissertation that never, you know, came to conclu- to full conclusion. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like we would have no shortage, right? And you can also write about, uh, you can do do a year in Provence and see see what insights you have. Um, that would be great. Yeah. So can, let's... Can I, can I just add, may, maybe it's unrelated to the podcast, but just to add to this point, I th- I think it's really interesting that you know, voters of radical right parties in Europe feel underrecognized, undervalued by mainstream society. And they are not completely wrong. People actually do very strongly dislike them and their parties. And also, interestingly, it's asymmetric in the sense that these radical right voters do not reciprocate with the same intensity of dislike toward mainstream parties. So there's something here that is unique and uh, not just actually for radical parties, but for the radical right. So I just find it really interesting that, you know, it somehow resonates with how supporters of these parties feel and that they are being overlooked by mainstream society and mainstream elites. So let, let's move a little bit to uh, solutions. Um, I, I think you and I both agree that a more proportional voting system would be a, a helpful change to make American politics more governable. 
But, you know, I'm curious, uh, you know, how you see that working and, and what you think it is the kind of mechanism by which more proportional voting systems uh, diffuse some of the out party hatreds and, you know, how it, how it could work in the U.S. And you know, one of the things that also I was struck with uh, in your book was, you know, that, that this affective polarization in a lot of countries seems to fluctuate over time, whereas in the U.S. it's just been straight line trend. Yeah, so there's definitely fluctuations, and you know we are covering a relatively long time period with an economic crisis and the so-called migration crisis. So there's a lot going on, a lot of noise or a lot of fluctuations. But still, I think we can identify um, correlations with uh, some of these main structural factors. But thinking more closely about the relationship between proportional systems and affective polarization. What's the mechanism? What's connecting the two? And I think that one key mechanism here is coalition formation, which is of course the norm in proportional systems where you have multiple parties that need to cooperate in a coalition to form a government. Here, what we find is that people give an affective bonus to parties that govern together in a coalition. So this may be because parties that govern together are perceived to be more similar in terms of their ideology and their party positions, uh, or because party leaders don't tend to publicly attack and criticize their coalitional partners, or, or maybe both. But there's a very substantial affective bonus between coalition partners, and that's probably one key mechanism behind this relationship between proportional systems and lower affective polarizations. And by the way, it's interesting that this affective bonus lingers over quite a long time period. It diminishes after five years or so, but it doesn't completely disappear even after a decade. So all in all, it adds up to lower levels of affective polarization. So let me follow up on that, um, you know, talking about proportional systems. So, I mean, obviously there's uh, a wide variety of proportional systems with uh, uh, Israel and I guess the, the Netherlands on kind of one extreme of, you know, what, what you might call hyper proportional. And then there's sort of countries that are, are more modest in their proportionality so it might not surprise you that when I uh, talk about a proportional representation, people always say, uh, well, what about Israel? Uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of curious to, to ask you, uh, well, what about Israel? And you know, additionally, uh, are there systems of proportional representation that you think are are better or worse. I mean, we think about like Israel with a, a closed list uh, system with, with a relatively low threshold and one uh, national district, as opposed to something like the, the German system with compensatory seats or the Irish system of STV. So, you know, really what, what about Israel is, you know, should Israel warn us away from proportional representation? And, you know, are there systems that based on your research, you think, uh, work better or or worse in terms of, of managing divisions that exist in societies? Yeah, that, that's a tough question. I guess it's an interesting time to think about, about it. So here in Israel, obviously people are frustrated but by our very proportional system, right? We had four elections in two years and we may be heading toward the fifth election in a few weeks. No one actually knows. 
And so here people are frustrated in Israel by proportional representation in, in the US, people are frustrated by the majoritarian system. So it is from the perspective of most Israeli voters at the moment, proportional system is actually not a solution for everything. That being said, as you mentioned, proportional systems come in all sorts of institutional arrangements. And one idea that is currently discussed in Israel is that perhaps we should keep our system of proportional representation with a relatively low threshold, but also give the largest party some kind of bonus in terms of the seats it receives in parliament. And the idea behind it is that this may encourage, incentivize people to vote for one of the larger parties or also incentivize smaller parties to merge and run together instead of having too many options uh, or maybe not too many, but instead of having so many different parties represented in parliament. So I think there are ways in which you can have a proportional system, but still try and encourage type of voting that would allow more stable coalition formation. And of course, as I mentioned before, here in Israel, people are very much frustrated by our proportional system. But at the same time, I do think we can also see some of the benefits that go back to what we discussed earlier, for instance, the tensions within the GOP and the fact that some factions within the Republican Party may have been able to defect uh, in the type of electoral systems we have here, where it's actually quite easy to defect and form a new party. And indeed, what we've seen here is that a certain group of uh, members of parliament from the main center-right party, Likud party, who didn't want to continue supporting uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, have they split and formed a new party. And even though it didn't receive that much support, it may be just enough to deprive him of a majority, or at least it's gonna make his life much, much harder. So even though the proportional system is far from perfect, we do see that it allows for the representation of more views or more uh, perspectives, including for instance, the right-wing anti-Netanyahu faction. So as we as we wind things down, I wanted to ask you kind of a big, broad question that speaks to the, the public facing nature of this podcast, which is what are some things that you think we kind of get wrong or should pay more attention to or less attention to in the kind of public and media discourse about polarization? What are the what are the misunderstandings or the things you wish people knew? I think that a lot of the debate focuses on specific type of personalities or psychological motivations and drivers and urges. And that makes a lot of sense because we have a sense that, you know, this type of affective polarization really does relate to um, personalities and psychological needs. But what I hope people can take from our work is the fact that affective polarization is also rooted in more structural factors not only in certain types of people, but actually in certain types of institutions. And once we make this shift, we can more thoroughly think about how and whether we want to reform institutions, which may be easier than reforming people. Well, I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a great note to, to end on. And, you know, I mean, I think this, you know, this conversation really hits home for me, uh, the importance of uh, looking at the United States in a comparative context uh, in order to really better understand the possibilities 
uh, for how we might solve these uh, really pressing threats to democracy here in the United States. So thank you so much for, for joining us all the way from Israel, Noam. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 